Hi, welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Midi News Hour. I'm Carolyn Glick, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Gotti Taub. Hey, Gotti. A pleasure to be here once again. So we have a full we have a full program today in our news hour, and basically, I think we wanted to talk about uh, the new government, the new government, the first government in Israeli history that includes uh, large uh, large uh, sections of the government are comprised of of uh, of politicians that don't believe that Israel has a right to exist. Either they don't want to have a Jewish state or they want to have a Hamas state. This is something that we've never seen uh, in Israeli history. And we're going to talk about what the normalization of this new government really means uh, for Israel. And we're going to look at it uh, in different ways, both in, in respect to Hamas and the Palestinians and Jerusalem and in respect to immigration, something that I'm sure that a lot of our American viewers are going to immediately similarities between the situation here and the situation with post-nationalist Americans uh, now running uh, the White House in Congress. Um, and then if we have any time, and I'm not sure we do, we may have to devote a section of this to later, is uh, Ilhan Omar's new uh, campaign directed specifically against the American Jewish community and their values in social justice. So without further ado, let's start with the normalization of this new government. Uh, this week, a uh, foreign minister and uh, an alternate and, and uh, effective uh, f uh, prime minister, Yair Lapid, went to Abu Dhabi to, uh, to uh, uh, gather up the fruits of uh, Netanyahu's labors from the Abraham Accords. Uh, Israel had the official opening of its embassy to the United Arab Emirates. And uh, Lapid met there with the, uh, with the leaders of the United Arab Emirates and signed a bunch of economic cooperation agreements, which will hopefully end a lot of the remaining roadblocks to uh, further integration of the economies of the two countries, which is all fantastic. And um, initially, he seemed like he was being very respectful. At the opening ceremony of the, of the embassy, he tipped his hat to former Prime Minister Netanyahu and said that he and former President Donald Trump deserve all the credit for uh, uh, the Abraham Accords that they worked so hard for. But then, you know, his hatred of uh, Netanyahu and, and of Trump uh, was irrepressible. And in the evening, uh, this was on Tuesday, he gave a uh, briefing to the Israeli journalists who had come with him to the UAE. And uh, do you remember what he said, Dottie? He, he, he basically repeated the, he's a mouthpiece for the Biden administration. And their and their do you mean? Uh, struggle against the Abraham Accords because because the line is it was the line of the Israeli left all along is that the Abraham Accords are a sham it's not a real peace agreement it's just a way to bypass the the real issue which is the Palestinian issue looked for looked at a, another way I'll quote Secretary Pompeo um, who who spoke on my podcast and and said that one of the three pillars of the American of their administration's policy in the Middle East was um, doing away with the Palestinian veto on every, on all relations of Israel with the with any Arab entities because that that's what it was. The Palestinian have been the cause celebre for the for the Arab world, and you had to nod your head to the Palestinians before you did anything. What the Trump administration managed to do is to say you. We understand. We offered a deal. We understand that you're rejecting it. You always do. And so, so long as you're not willing to compromise on anything, we'll try other channel. And they succeeded. Now, what this actually means is returning the Palestinians to the status where they have a veto on Israel's relation with everyone. Now you can explain why this is necessary for the JCPOA. Oh, I wasn't even going to go there. I actually want to just uh, uh, put, I want to just uh, sort of take a pause for a second and remark about a remarkable man, Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of uh, Defense in the Bush away. administration, who passed away uh, this week. We're recording this on Thursday morning, and he passed away on Wednesday. And, um, you know, one thing that uh, distinguished Rumsfeld from everybody else uh, in the Bush administration and really in American administrations for decades before the before he was a uh, defense secretary, I think he was defense secretary earlier as well uh, under 
I, I don't remember. He had such a long service record and under Bush uh, one. He, he may have been. Def- no, that was Cheney. Anyway, I don't want to go into it. But Defense uh, Secretary Rumsfeld wrote this memoir of his time in office. And he had this incredible line in there, um, which is that he said that every time that he went to meet Arab leaders, um, the first thing that they would say uh, was uh, that they were very upset about the Palestinian issue. And it took him some time to realize that this was just like clearing their throat, that this was a formality sort of like saying, how was your flight? Uh, do you have everything that you need? And uh, Israel is terrible and we worry about the Palestinians. And so he said, the, the thing is, is that most US officials who would go and meet with Hosni Mubarak and even with Saddam Hussein and King Hussein of uh, Jordan and then uh, King Abdallah of Jordan afterwards and all of the rest of them, the Saudi leaders um, all took this seriously because this is what they kept saying, but he didn't, but it, it took him a while to realize that it was all, uh, it was all a lie. It was all just, uh, it was just uh, going through the formalities. And one of the purposes of this constant harping on the Palestinians, which opened every meeting that senior American officials had with their Arab interlocutors for decades, was that they didn't want the Americans to talk about how they were mismanaging their own finances, how they were supporting terrorism, how they were doing any number of things that were harmful to US national security interests in the Middle East. And so the way for them to deflect that criticism from the outset, at the outset of every meeting was to raise this uh, chimera, this uh, red herring of the Palestinians. And I really thought you know, that that was what was guiding him all along the way. And if you want me to uh, combine the uh, uh, giving the veto back to the Palestinians and and embracing this BS again as uh, as a, the the anchor of U.S. Middle East policy and even of Israeli peacemaking policy or of Israeli strategic policy um, with the Iranian deal. You know, I mean, D- Don Rumsfeld, he's been pilloried uh, by American conservatives and Democrats alike for the Iran war for the invasion of Iraq. I'm mean, not the Iran war, the invasion Iraq of Iraq in, in, 19, in 2003. Um, but the thing is, is people forget something. And I, you know, I was in Iraq with the third infantry division when it, when, when it, when during the invasion, I was an embedded uh, reporter with, uh, with the first brigade two seven uh, mechanized infantry battalion. And uh, the Americans, realized soon after they came in that, uh, that, or even before then, let me back up, before the U.S. invasion in late 2002, I think beginning in December, you started seeing these large convoys of trucks uh, going from suspected chemical weapon sites in Iraq across the border into Syria, okay? And, um, and Ariel Sharon, who was prime minister of Israel at the time, warned the Americans, look, you know, the, the Iraqis are just moving their chemical weapons into Bashar al-Assad's Syria. This is what's happening. So when Baghdad fell and, and across the way, we, like, we went into the suspected chemical site and there were atrophy needles all over their place. There were protective uh, masks and everything for chemical weapons in these storerooms and they couldn't find they couldn't find the weapons themselves. So we went there and I said, this was a suspected chemical weapons site. And I showed, you know, that we had found all of the uh, protective gear for chemical weapons. And then everybody said that I was like a Mossad agent or something like that. And like Israeli reporters shouldn't be reporting on all of these things inside of Israel, in, in Iraq. It was totally bizarre. But like at the very beginning of, uh, this was in the, really like the first couple of weeks of the war. And again, Sharon had given this warning beginning in, in, in December, I think, 2002, maybe January into January of 2003, and the invasion was in March, uh, about, the, about the convoys of trucks. So Rumsfeld said, you know, we need to go in hot pursuit of the weapons and also of the generals, the Ba'athist generals were running to Syria uh, ahead of the U.S. invasion or, on, you know, as the Americans were invading. And um, and what happened was that uh, Colin Powell uh, rushed to Syria. He suddenly arrives in Damascus, apropos of nothing, embraces Assad as a man of peace and a partner and stopped the whole effort to try to actually go after 
the chemical weapons that were that had been moved into Syria. Because what what the Pentagon and what the Pentagon brass and of course Colin Powell was a general and who's former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, didn't want was they didn't want to recognize that Iraq was part of a a transnational um, alliance of anti-American Ba'athists and terror supporters, and that actually, and that and that Syria's was in many ways, and it still is, was this sort of um, meeting point between Iraq and Iran, because Bashar Assad and before that Hafez al-Assad uh, was close, not only as Ba'athists to Saddam Hussein, but also as Alawites, which are sort of a break off of Shia Islam to the Iranians. And they received weapons and money and all of that from Iran, beginning with the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. So they had very close ties with Iran. They had very close ties with Iraq and, um, you know, through Hezbollah and Lebanon as well. And this was the system. And throughout the insertion, the, the insurgency in, in Iraq that followed the invasion that really began almost immediately after the fall of Baghdad, um, the war was really not a war in Iraq. It was a proxy war that was run by the Syrians and by the Iranians on Iraqi territory against the Americans and the British. And, and Rumsfeld was able to see this. And he was also able to see that the problem, and this was over time because initially he was in, he was also in denial about it. But by 2005, Rumsfeld recognized that the, that the party that was really behind everything that was happening, all of the attacks against American forces, both the Shiite militias in the South and the Sunni militias that were aligned with Al-Qaeda in the North, were all run by Iran, all of them. So that the, the progenitor of, uh, of ISIS, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, I, um, what was his name? Was it Aliki? I can't remember his name anymore. Suddenly, um, but Baghdadi he, or no, it, before him it, it might have been Aliki, but I can't. No, it wasn't. I'm terrible. Uh, but he was killed by U.S. forces in like 2006. So, but he he formed Al Qaeda in Iraq, and Al Qaeda in Iraq then morphed into ISIS. And where did he come from? He came from Iran. The whole Shura Council of, of Al-Qaeda moved from Afghanistan to Iran after the Battle of Tora Bora in October of 2001. So that you're looking at like the development of a system, an enemy system that's transnational, that traverses mainly three countries. The center of, of kinetic operation of, of warfare is in Iraq, but it's actually run through the transfer of weapons and, and material and direction uh, from Iran and from Syria. And because, and, and Rumsfeld recognized this and uh, Colin Powell uh, and the State Department uh, refused to recognize this and they demonized Rumsfeld and they said that he was a warmonger and all the rest of it. But, and, and you know, you can argue, and I think that there's a stronger case particularly in hindsight, to be made for not having gone into Iraq at all. Or if you went into Iraq, do it like they did in, two, in 1991 in the Gulf War, go in, take care of business, and then leave as quickly as possible. But um, I think that that is a stronger argument. But I think that the war could have been won, that is, the the terror complex that uh, stood behind the 9-11 attacks and then everything that came before and everything that came after was based in this area. It was just that the center of gravity wasn't Saddam Hussein, it was Iran and the, and the Pentagon or the, sorry, the sort of the deep state, the Colin Powell and all of his loyalists inside of the bureaucracy and the Pentagon and the State Department their unwillingness to recognize the nature of the war that was being waged against the United States in Iran, that it was a proxy, in Iraq, sorry, that it was a proxy war led by the Iranians was very much responsible for the quagmire because essentially they, they ensured, they guaranteed that Iraq was going to turn into another Vietnam. Where, I mean, what was the problem in Vietnam? The problem in Vietnam was that 
The Viet Cong had an inexhaustible supply of weapons and material and people coming down from North Vietnam and from Cambodia and, and further away from China. And so that if you weren't, and the Soviet Union, and if you weren't willing to take the war to North Vietnam and even into Cambodia, then you weren't gonna be able to win. So the Americans tried that, but then the peace movement stopped it, right? And said, you weren't allowed, there was an invisible line uh, between North and South Vietnam and America wasn't able to go beyond that. And if they went beyond that, it was, you know, they were killers, they were murderers, they were whatever, they were warmongers. And so it was the same concept that you, you view the, the borders between Syria and Iraq on the one hand and Iran and Iraq on the other hand as these sort of sacred lines that you cannot cross even though if you don't cross them, you're never actually going to be able to defeat your enemies. And you're just stuck in this little sandbox that, is, that, that exists because of things that are happening outside of the sandbox. So, Don Rumsfeld, just to you know, end this uh, reminiscence of him, he, after a fashion, I mean, initially he realized it, and then he was in denial about what was happening to U.S. forces. I'm not going to go into that, but in around 2005, he he recognized what was happening, and he wanted to do the right thing about it. He wanted to talk about the fact that all the IEDs were being produced in Iran. He wanted to talk about the fact that the terror leaders that were attacking U.S. forces in the north and in the south of the country were were Iranian directed, and he was blocked. And so his 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 uh, his legacy, I think, in a way, is is a uh, cautionary tale of what happens when you're not willing to accept the truths that that go beyond the narrative that you're willing to accept. And here, this brings us back to Yair Lapid attacking Trump and Netanyahu on Tuesday in the UAE. Because I mean, you know. What what did Trump's entire presidency was four years of rejecting all of their narratives that had been failing in the Middle East for, you know, uh, 30 years, 40 years. I mean, it was an acceptance of it was an uh, it began with a recognition that Rumsfeld was right when he said that when Mubarak and uh, the, the King Fahd and King Hussein and King Abdallah and all of these people were saying Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. Uh, they just were saying, don't look at us, don't look at us, don't look at us, you know, leave us alone, just pay attention to Israel and sell us arms. Um, and so the Trump administration started with that very clear and also brave recognition on the part of Rumsfeld of, of reality. And all of the success that they had in the region with bringing peace, with bringing stability, with ending wars, was owed to the fact that they were premising all of their policy on that rec recognition of reality that, that Rumsfeld almost alone had. I mean, Cheney had it too uh, during the Bush administration. And that was the key to their success. And just as Rumsfeld has been demonized, you know, really since 2004, 2005, despite his greatness and the fact that he was an incredible patriot, and very, very smart and just a man dedicated to public service and to his country. Um, so, uh, you know, Trump and Netanyahu have been demonized mm -hmm. and, and delegitimized. And the goal of these people is to blot out every single thing that they did. You know, people like Lapid, people like Naftali Bennett, and obviously Biden and his entire team, because their success is proof that these crazy and uh, impermeable lies that these 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 unstoppable falsehoods that have informed all of their decisions about Middle East policy and of course in a much wider way for decades are ridiculous. They they don't want anybody to pay attention to that. That's why he could say, like you said, you know, Trump spent with Jared Kushner and Greenblatt and Friedman, and you can like or not like their, you know, deal of the century that they put together, but they worked on that thing like crazy people for three years. You know, it's hundreds of pages long and it comes up with some ideas that are, that are reasonable and they tried very hard to base them all on reality on the ground. And so after they've spent three years working on this thing, put it out, 
everybody greeted it with a yawn because they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with reality. The only people who didn't greet it with the yawn are people like the UAE, you know, the, the light leaders of the UAE and Sudan and Morocco, Saudi Arabia, of course, even though they didn't officially join the Abraham Accords, but they never would have happened without, without the Saudis. And they said, let's end our conflict with Israel. These people are serious. Israel is uh, a power really at this point parallel to South, South Korea. I mean, we, Netanyahu transformed us into a regional power, both economically and, and militarily. But, there, and but there's also, Carolyn, a, a very specific aspect to the current quagmire. And this is that the, the whole, the ability to um, create these new bridges to the Arab world uh, via the Abraham Accords all depended on the um, growing realism of the Sunnis in the face of a real threat. Israel was the bogus enemy and Iran is the real enemy. Right. And so Israel does not put the U UAE in, in any kind of danger, but Iran does. Same goes for the Saudis. And so this was the, this was the reason for this alliance. And the reason they're now shifting it back to a Palestinian veto is that this alliance is clearly disturbing their new realignment towards Iran. This is what they're trying to do. And Lapid is just their mouthpiece for that. And it seems that he doesn't even understand what the, how this fits the, 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 the larger jigsaw puzzle, because, because he doesn't understand that, J that the JCPOA is, is not going to prevent Iran from from having a nuclear weapons to the contrary. It's it, the, the JCPOA is about granting them recognition in the, in, in, in the space of less than a decade to their nuclear program. And, you know, I think you were talking about how he's just the mouthpiece of the Biden administration. I think that's true because I think that the conventional, the failed conventional thinking that, you know, we see uh, projected to us, whether it's on CNN or the major networks in the United States or any of the other elite media in the middle, in the, in the, in the, in the West, um, is just, you know, this is all about, uh, everybody repeating one another, everybody parroting one another's lines, everybody agreeing with this received wisdom that was proved wrong, you know, 40, 50 years ago, but nobody cares. And if you want to be a member of that club, then you have to just do that. So that in order to be a member of the international media club, you just have to give away your ability to think independently. And Lapid, like a lot of members of this government, are members of Israel's elite media, of Israel's left-wing media. And for them, you know, the idea of getting the approval of people on CNN or getting the approval of people on, on NBC or ABC News or the BBC is the, is the, uh, the greatest uh, achievement that one can aspire to. And so none of these people who are shaping Israel's own discourse, and this isn't just in the media, it's in all of our elites, are capable of independent thought because they are tied intellectually and socially to Western elites. And so we're, we're stuck in this loop of non-thought. That's why Lapid you know, is incapable of understanding anything. And, and I actually want to talk from this also about your book and about the immigration thing, but I, I need to just highlight one last aspect of this, which is Hamas, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people are saying rightly that, that Ilhan Omar in the Democrat party, she's the representative of the Hamas inside of the red green alliance of the American left. And I think that's true. And like I said, if we have time at the you know end of this broadcast, we'll talk a little bit about her latest assault on American Jews. But um, we have a Hamas representative inside of this government, you know, and uh, that's Mansour Abbas, the head of the United Arab List. We've talked about him exhaustively. And I think um, we're only this week, we started to recognize what it means to have, uh, we're starting to recognize what it means to have a representative of the Islamic movement, which is a, an, a Muslim Brotherhood movement from Israel the Israeli is a Muslim Brotherhood inside of the government, um, because this week uh, on Channel 20, which is the non-elite uh, channel in Israel, um, is that uh, uh, they're uh, the head of their Arab desk, this uh, former uh, IDF uh, intelligence analyst named uh, Baruch Yadid, he reported 
that on Egyptian television this week, they had a discussion uh, about Abbas, Mansour Abbas and, and his party and, and Israel. Uh, and one of the participants in it was a man named Hassan Atzfur. Hassan Atzfur, when I was in the talks with the Palestinians, when I was in the army, he was one of the lead Palestinian negotiators. Uh, and uh, so he was on this show as a senior Fatah official who's also involved with dialogue between Fatah and Hamas. Fatah, for our American viewers who don't follow all of that, is the largest PLO faction. It's the faction that rules the Palestinian Authority. Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, like Arafat before him, are the heads of Fatah. And through Fatah, which again is the largest PLO uh, faction, are the heads of the PLO. So that's sort of the, the PLO, Fatah, Palestinian Authority. So, so Hassan Asfour is a, is a senior member of Fatah. He was on this program in, in Egypt and the Egyptian television, and he was talking about Mansour Abbas. And he said that Mansour Abbas is now mediating between Hamas and the American administration and the Biden administration. So he's a, an Israeli government representative. It's a re representative of the Israeli government. He's a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He is mediating between a foreign terrorist organization, a jihadist movement, Hamas, that is controlled by Iran. He is, he is, he is mediating between Hamas and the US government. Now, who, without, without knowing, without it being reported openly, who do you know the, his interlocutor in the Biden administration. Is any guesses, Gadi? You know who he's talking to? No, no. Oh, he's talking to Hadi Amar. Hadi Amar is the assistant uh, secretary of state for Israel and Palestinians, and he is a Hamas supporter. Hadi Amar got his job after a stint at the Brookings uh, at the Brookings Institute. He founded their uh, office in in Doha in Qatar, which is Hamas's main bankroller, right? And this week uh, we discovered that uh, Qatar is also bankrolling now the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is pretty incredible for a country that houses America's largest air base in the Middle East, the Al Obaid uh, Air Base in Doha. At any rate, so uh, he founded the uh, Brookings Institute branch in Doha. He's very close to the Qatari regime. And he wrote, an, uh, he wrote a, a policy paper in 2019, which is a blueprint for a democratic administration to undo everything that Trump was doing. In 2019, he wrote it after the opening of the US embassy in Jerusalem and the US withdrawal from the Iran nuclear uh, agreement. So Hadi Amar called for the United States to do everything possible under U.S. law to have open relations with Hamas. All right. And so, you know, without. Oh, and Biden intends to appoint Hadi Amar, the Hamas supporter. He wants Hamas to be integrated into the PLO. And of course, since they're more powerful, they're more popular, I'm sorry, than, than Fatah is. And all, you know, if there were elections held tomorrow, they would win, you know, uh, uh, without lifting a finger. Uh, because they're far more supported among Palestinians than Fatah is. And so uh, he wants to integrate Hamas into the PLO. Hadi Amar does. He's responsible for U.S. policy towards the Palestinians and, and Israel. And Biden wants to appoint him to be U.S. Consul General in Jerusalem, um, meaning that Biden intends to you know, support the division of Jerusalem. He wants to bring in a Hamas supporter to be the U.S. representative in Jerusalem. And right now that Hamas supporter, Hadi Amar, is, is this is my educated guess, but I can't imagine it be anybody else. He is working with Mansour Abbas, who is a member of the governing coalition of the state of Israel, in mediating between a terrorist organization, Hamas, dedicated to the annihilation of Israel, that just threw, you know, that just attacked us with 4,300 missiles in 10 days. Uh, Mansour Abbas is now mediating between them and the U.S. administration. And Mansour Abbas is the representative of a local branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is amazingly outlawed in states neighbor in Arab states, neighboring in Israel, in Egypt and in Jordan, and 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 is in the coalition here. It's it's mind-boggling that we have a coalition with a radical Islamist organization which is outlawed in Egypt because it endangers the the uh, the, the secular um, army uh, affiliated regime. Affiliated is not the the, the right because term. Because it seeks to transform it, it seeks to transform Egypt into a Sunni Iran. 
and so it seeks to do to Israel too. And and they're just uh, and this is hidden behind a supposedly civil agenda. And this is how the Muslim Brotherhood works everywhere. This is the system. It's not. This is not the exception. This is the rule. Part of the part of the their their strategy is always to um, play moderate and then take part in governing and in creating institutions and in creating their own little welfare state, which they did because this coalition has given them an unbelievable an unbelievable uh, amount of, of money. They got they got huge budgets, part of which half a billion shekel is. I don't even know how to say this. It's a a slash fund that they can use without any supervision. A a, a half a billion shekels. So this is how they build infrastructure. And once they they build uh, their infrastructure in in institutions of education and welfare, they they seduce the population by hot kitchen soups and by schools. And then they use this for indoctrination. And this government is just openly cooperating with this in order to stay in power. That's that's mind-boggling. It's it's mind-boggling. It's also treacherous. And you know, and and but it's part of a it's part of an agenda, right? I mean it's a part of a wider agenda that I think we should get to now, which is post-national, which is ending um which is ending the nation state of Israel as a Jewish state um, uh, very similarly, of course, to the way that all the uh, uh, George Soros Open Society uh, NGOs are pushing for the destruction of national identity throughout Europe, and of course, first and foremost, in the United States. Um, and you know, the the thing that now you know really has been irksome since this uh, post post nationalist post Zionist government came into office two and a half three weeks ago, is that we talked about it last week. Is that um, there's a uh, government regulation that has to be renewed every year, uh, preventing uh, uh, Arab Israelis or really anybody from get, getting automatic citizenship for their spouses if they come from enemy states. And uh, this has been automatically renewed, but because we have uh, the United Arab List in the coalition, we have the post-nationalist merits party that is aligned with Fatah in the coalition. They don't have a majority inside of the coalition to renew this this uh, a- this regulation that has to be updated annually. Just to, just to be a little more precise on, on yeah. how it is for those who don't know, we, we the problem is not with states who are clearly our enemies, but ever since the Oslo Accords, allegedly the Palestinians are no longer our, our enemies. And so Israeli Arabs were allowed, it's called family unification, if they marry someone from the Palestinian Authority to have that someone naturalized here. But, and this is now going on under, under human rights banners. And this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what, the, what the temporary regulation said was that according to Shabak, this general security services, um, pa- Palestinian um, uh, citizens of the Palestinian Authority were also a security threat. And so on the basis of this, it was renewed for the Palestinian Authority. But the real thing never was security, although that's a consideration too. Well, it is. The I real mean, issue, remember- but the real I issue, just- Caroline, the, the, the most basic issue, the, the, we have to keep in mind always that this whole conflict is about demography. It always has been, and it will continue to be. And this was a demographic weapon for the law of return. They're trying to uh, to, to achieve uh, what they could not get at the negotiation table by, by dressing it up as family unification. That's one part of it. The other part is security. And the third part is this, this is trafficking in women. And, and, and now that the Meretz people supported those, those champions of human rights, what it enables Bedouins and, and Israeli Arabs who had, who had seen their wives um, acquire modern um, gender equality is to buy wives from tribal society for money in and bring in their third fourth fifth seventh wife um whom whom they uh, they can safely probably assume will be more servile and so we're allowing this it's not just it's the first danger is demographic but the the 
third, the, 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 the third issue I talked about is the horror of, of, of polygamy, where if you ever visit, I don't know, Caroline, if you, you visit the, the Bedouin um, uh, sector, but when you go and see it in action, it's just, you, you, when they get tired of one wife, they get a 17-year-old girl and they push that other wife to some, to some shack at the edge of their squatting territory. And she and her children are half ostracized and have nowhere to go and can't divorce and can't work and can't disobey their husband. And, 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 then, and then they have children whom they don't even know. Um, people have you know, hundreds of, of grandchildren, tens of, of children in, in such families. Um, and, we, and we keep supporting this, this barbarian um, uh, behavior. Yeah, I just, the only thing I wanted to underline is that there is a security problem. So Nadav Shorgai uh, uh, from uh, Israel Ayob uh, brought the data this week. It works out that Palestinians who receive Israeli uh, citizenship through, uh, through marriage, through family unification, are three times more likely to be terrorists than Israeli Arabs are, uh, have, have participated. And, you know, there is much, there are a smaller proportion of Israeli Arab society, but they're three times more likely to be suicide bombers or three times more likely to be members of terrorist organizations or three times more likely to, you know, and, and the numbers actually, if you look at them, you know, in different ways, the numbers go up different, you know, even, even higher. But, but the point I think, you know, so that they are a strategic, they are a security danger to Israel. I mean, you, they are. And, but, uh, but I think, uh, you know. Terrorism the, is a smaller strategic uh, danger than, than, uh, than, than demography. demography is. And, because, and what they had yeah. found really was that from 1994, when, when they began with the implementation of the Oslo Accords, uh, till 2003, when the Sharon government passed this law or passed this temporary order, uh, that already 150,000 Palestinians had dual residency, dual citizenship with Israel through, through marriage to Israelis, so that they were pouncing on this loophole, like you said, in order to uh, flood Israel with more Arabs. And, and of course, from a demographic, pers demographic perspective, they were actually double counting them in their censuses. So that, you know, then it, that was how they were able to develop the demographic scare that said that Israel was going to be overwhelmed, that there were going to be more Arabs than Jews west of the Jordan River by 2001 by 2005, by 2009, because they were double counting all of these people. They were double counting Jerusalem residents and they were double counting the over 150,000 Palestinians who were living in Israel. They were, and, and that was how they were, that was one of the ways that they inflated the number of, of Arabs by 50%. And the uh, demographic scare is, is a, a double-edged argument because, because demo, as I said, demography is at the basis of, of this conflict it always has been it was at the basis of the uh, well, it's not demography it's judaism i mean it's their unwillingness to have a jewish state you say demography but it's no, actually I, i'm, I'm still specific I'm demography they wouldn't mind so much if you know we were we were i don't know what if we were turks or or, or yes, british you but, know but, the problem specifically we, is jews you but know. since we are jews and this is this is the conflict then they're their whole thought is directed at demography. And this is why, you know, Caroline, I changed my mind. I became a supporter of annexation of the Jordan Valley because Israel's primary concern is and should be um, uh, preventing the Palestinians from achieving territorial continuity with the larger Arab uh, area, because we are a, a a tiny Jewish community in a in a in a, a region that has 400 million Muslim Arabs, and the, and their weapon, and they're absolutely right about it. If you read what the Palestinians say, their their eyes are also on the Jordan Valley because this would be their demographic springboard against two states, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan and Israel. So in their dream, they could use this. Uh, the, 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 they could use the, the Jordan Valley or a, 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 a Palestinian state over the West Bank in order to bring refugees back into this region and turn the demographic balance uh, on, on both counts and by, by this destabilize these, both, these two countries in order to create a, 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 the, the 
larger Palestine. The, the, I, don't, I don't remember the, the whole Palestinian, um, the, greater Palestine. the greater Palestine territory. Thanks. And, and though this dream may not be entirely realistic, it is dangerous enough to reach the destabilization of both Israel and, and Jordan. And so um, the, the false demographic argument are a good reminder of the real demographic concerns, which we should never let slip from our attention. You know, um, I think I think that again, you know, part of this, uh, it, it's weird, right? Because uh, the left in Israel has been pushing the demographic thing as as an argument why Israel should have a Palestinian state, which would of course enjoy an open bridge to the entire uh, Islamic world across the Jordan Valley. You know that we would give it up and they would cross the River Jordan and bring in all of their brethren from Iraq and from Syria and from. Uh, from Saudi, excuse me, Saudi Arabia, and so on and so forth, um, which is insane. But um, they also uh, have this idea that Israel is evil if we don't allow open immigration and then grant rights of citizenship to illegal aliens from uh, from Africa and really from anywhere who want want to be here. And you know, I think that this was this is one of the themes that you bring up in your book. And uh, everybody should know that uh, Gadi put out a, a very important book last year. It was right uh, called. Yep. Uh, uh, Nayadim uh, v'nayachim. It's hard to translate. It's well, no, the, the it's mobile and the local. Well, it's, yeah, well, it's it's mo it's movable and immovable property, right? It's people who are people who are the jet setters who who see their lives, the people who they're relating to, you know, as people are, are they're more related sociologically to people who live in Silicon Valley and in New York than they are to the people who live in the working class suburb of their, of, of their uh, Tony, Tony neighborhood in uh, North Tel Aviv and uh, people who, who just live here and don't have any intention of going anywhere else. And so, I mean, we have it all over the Western world, this, distinction you know they call it flyover country in the united states or the rednecks and everything like that people who who like america and don't have any reason to get a passport because it never occurred to them that they have to leave their country and people who think that they you know in in silicon valley they have more in common with people who live in vancouver and people who live in tokyo than people who live in in eastern california and uh so, you know, you want to, why don't, why don't you talk about that in the Israeli context and, you know, what you're thinking? Yeah, the, the, the fight over immigration is here in Israel, over illegal immigration is basically the same as it is in the United States over the, the, the southern border and as it is over the refugee crisis in, in Europe. And it's always the same with the Soros foundations there, the New Israel Fund here, the progressives in the, uh, on the, the left wing now, the dominant wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and, and, and it's always the same um, internationalist elite which is using illegal immigration as a battering ram against the nation states. And what the, the, the central argument of the book is that they keep saying that they are declaring that they are at war with nationalism, those progressives, because nationalism is exclusive, exclusive semi-fascist, um, dangerous, regressive, creates international conflict. But the real behind all this lies their systematic attack on democracy. So what they are really undermining are democratic institutions. And we see this over the in, in the in the struggle over illegal immigration here, because the the majority of the Israeli public wants to hang on to the law of return because this is a Jewish state. And the attempt to attack the Jewish state via uh, attacking the immigration laws is an attack on its statutory foundations, right? So it's not that the question is not solving the humanitarian problem of this or that immigrant. The question is how do you undermine the law of return? And this is what, you know, the New Israel Fund organizations, this is their long-term goal. Now, the majority of Israelis do not agree. The majority of Israelis believe that nationalism is, a, is part and parcel of democracy, that it's part of our right to self-determination, that Zionism has two faces. One is its democracy, the other is the Jewish character of the state. But they are unwilling, they are, un, they are unable to, to uh, have their will expressed politically because this elite has transferred power from elected bodies 
to, to appointed bodies, and they appoint themselves in Israel's unparalleled strong judiciary. The judiciary in Israel is sort of an uber government, and they control their own appointment. So it's a leftist uh, branch of government, which has maneuvered to um, a status that enables it to subdue the two others. And so you see how at this intersection, their war on the national character of the state can only proceed if they manage to hijack um, uh, democracy. And not surprisingly, immigration law is the area in which Israel's courts intervene more than any other area of policy. And it's striking how it's the same in, 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 in America. And it's also striking that in America and in Israel, the, uh, the progressive, um, um, progressive politics also have an executive arm in law enforcement, which, which then intercepts um, uh, nationalist or populist or right-wing politicians. You know, we had this really interesting, uh, I saw a um, statement by the police yesterday, which I just found obscene. Uh, you know, we had these Israeli Arab uh, pogroms against Israeli Jews in mixed Israeli Arab cities uh, throughout the country during uh, last year, last month's mini war with Hamas, right? So that, you know, the, the missile, as the missiles were falling, uh, Jews were being lynched in, uh, in uh, mixed Israeli Arab, Israeli Jewish cities like Akko and Jaffa and Lod and Ramla. And um, there was a statement by the police yesterday that said that the vast majority of the Arabs who were participating in the lynchings were actually Palestinian collaborators with Israel who had come into Israel and received Israeli citizenship having been collaborators. Now, this was a stunning statement for two reasons. One is I don't think it's true. And because, you know, I've spoken to the people in Lod and they were telling me who their neighbors are who were attacking them. And nobody mentioned anything about these people being Palestinian collaborators with Israel. Although you might say that collaborators who had to run away from places like Ramallah and everything because they helped Israel in its counter-terrorist uh, operations may want to prove that they're more Catholic than the Pope. And so they want to attack Jews in the hope that they'll be able to be permitted to go back to their homes in Janine or in Ramallah or wherever without being murdered. Uh, so there's a possibility that that's true, but the notion that they're the majority is ridiculous. So one thing uh, that I found obscene about it was that it, it, it can't be true. It isn't true. We know it not to be true and the police are lying about it. And the other question is what is the impetus behind this statement? And I think that the impetus is to blame the victim. Because if you don't want to actually say that Israeli Arabs were incited by the by the Muslim Brotherhood, by the Israeli Arab, uh, by the Israeli Islamic movement, which is a Muslim Brotherhood movement that is aligned with Hamas, um, then what are you going to do? You're going to blame the victim. You're going to try to find another faction inside of Israeli Arab uh, uh, community to blame, and you want to take somebody that you can, in 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 the public mind, attach to Israel, so that you're saying that it's Israel's fault that we brought it on ourselves, that we worked with Palestinians against Palestinian terrorism, and as a result, we brought them into Israel so that they wouldn't be annihilated by the Palestinian Authority that's supposed to be our peace partner. I mean, the whole thing is so attenuated and such a lie. But you see here, you know, the Israeli deep state coming to the assistance of these irredentist elements inside of Israeli society who seek the destruction of Israel as the Jewish nation state. And it's so embedded that people don't even necessarily realizing that they're effectively committing treason when they do these kinds of things because it's become, you know, the thing that all of the elites do. They're all sort of knee-jerk, like, you you know, we, I was saying before that Yair Lapid is in, is impermeable. He cannot listen to reason because in his closed intellectual universe, if it doesn't fly on CNN, it has to be wrong. And so inside of this closed uh, intellectual or, or sociological universe of Israel's deep state, uh, there's something inherently wrong with protecting the Jewish identity of the country. You know, I've seen in the United States more and more recently, you know, you look at uh, the culture wars, which have, in a way have already been won. The fact that there's any question about whether it's reasonable or unreasonable for American athletes in the U.S. Olympic team to want to stand or refuse to stand for the for the Star Spangled Banner uh, is 
is a disaster. I mean, how can it be? How can it be, right? That 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 the greatest democracy, the most the freest country that the world has ever known, that provides opportunities unlike any scene in human history to its citizens and its residents, that people would say that there's something inherently evil about the flag of the United States of America. I mean, you can have, I have lots of criticism. We've voiced it here about the Biden administration, about the left in the United States, about elements of the right in the United States, about all kinds of things in the United States. But to look at that country and say that it's inherently evil, that it was born in sin, that you won't stand, you won't respect the flag, I mean, this is, it's gotten to a level of degeneration that you have no idea how people are going to rise up. I mean, this is the most basic thing, respect for your flag, and you hate your country so much. You think it's so terrible, so evil. You've been indoctrinated to believe that that, that lies are truth. I mean, this is the direction that Israel is going to be going uh, under this uh, under this new government. And, and um, I, I, th- I, I think it- Israel has... has um much more resilience and is will be much more resistant to this to this trend because unlike America despite the fact that we have our our forces have been fractured um we still have a very clear national majority in Israel so so I think the the and the manipulation here is not is not successful let me just point out to you uh, a subject which we often discuss uh, off off air, um, the the question of the Mizrahim, the 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 uh, Sephardic uh, Jews in Israel, all the, the, all the, the Jews from North Africa and from Middle Eastern countries, all despite many many years of leftist indoctrination in schools, they have not wavered about their national commitments. So so I think there are there are deep roots, both religious and national in the Israeli public and that we're not going to go down a drain so fast. I also have some faith, perhaps more than you, Carolyn, in America, that that will that it will at one point um, rise and shake off this uh, this this trend because because the, the actually, you know, I spoke on my podcast with with Ilana Yaron Fishbein, who's an Israeli woman who lives near Philadelphia, and she created this organization called No Left Turn in Education. And 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 I asked her because we see all these PDA meetings now with parents trying to rise up against uh, critical race theory and all these administrators <coughs> putting them down, apparently sometimes calling the police against parents in their own schools. That happened last week. In yeah, Virginia. yeah, it was, it was stunning. But, uh, but Ilana has created this organization against uh, the, the, the dominant anti-patriotic trend in education and i asked her what is the what are the responses how do you think what do you think is the ratio of the true uh, blue-blooded progressives um uh, relative to to the the body of parents and she said in my estimate 10 percent to 90 percent so many people are going with the democratic party because they're still thinking clinton and there, and though the Ilhan Omars are conquering larger swaths of the political um, um, uh, organization of the party, I think that most Americans are in the end patriots, and they, uh, they they will they will awaken from the spell of Obama at one point because when they realize it's actually real anti-Americanism. Most Americans would not go with it. My guess, you know, you're an American and I'm not. I'm a student of America as an academic field. Um, but my sense is that Americans do love their countries. Oh, I agree that. with you 100 percent. I think, you know, I think that both Israel and the United States are going to survive this. I think that we're going to rally and uh, and people are going to wake up in the United States. I think that the things that, that the thing that is going to save America is federalism. You know, I think that the fact that you have 50 separate states that people are, are going to, you know, like what we're seeing now with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, um, you know, he is emerging as as the most important uh, leader in the Republican Party because he is showing that federalism works, that he's kept Florida open through most of the pandemic. Uh, you, you know, I have a very close friend who's been trying to, like everybody, trying to sell her house in Manhattan to get the hell out of that dead town, you know, and move to Florida. But 
said, look, my apartment's been on the market, a beautiful apartment on uh, the Upper East Side for four months. I've had three people come in to look at it. He's, and, and on the other hand, you know, comparable places in, in South Florida are off the market within hours. Um, you know, you just, you, you, she can't sell her and so she can't buy one. And uh, so, you know, you look and you see federalism, people cling to their you know, they empower and they work with their state and local governments to try to uh, stand up against the feds. And, you know, I think that that's going to be the saving grace of the United States at the end of genius of the Constitution, right? This balance of powers, not only between the three branches and the federal government, but between the states and, and the federal governments. And so I think... And how striking is it that all these sane people who are, who, who are rising up to defend America are also friends of Israel? It's it's like it's never you're never wrong about these things. Those yeah. who are patriotic Americans, except the wild fringe that has been blown out of any proportion on the fringes of the right, like the I don't know, the, the, the actual white supremacists, then patriots are supporters of, of Israel. And maybe a last word before we end on, on what we talked about before before we got on air about how. It, or, or maybe what you mentioned in the beginning about Ilhan Omar um, and her quarrel with the Jews, because it, oh. it's true on the other side as well. The, the progressives are going to be anti-Semitic. It's a, it's a law. And all those Jews who are thinking, if we bend backwards enough and be Peter Beinart and reject Zionism and adopt all the progressive everything, then, then, then they'll be good with us. Then, then we'll, be, we, we'll bring our tikkun olam to the progressive movement. We are the tikkun olam, right? Was that, that was your phrasing. Um, are, there, it's, I, I don't want to compare with you know, reform in Germany. I don't think there's, there's going to be another Holocaust, but, but the trend is going to be the same. You're not going to gain points for yourselves by 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 sucking up to the progressives. No, I think you're right. You know, there is a confluence of interests, which is why, and of values, which is why the progressives in Israel feel so at home and comfortable with the Corbynized Democratic Party in the United States today, because they're trying to do the same thing in Israel. They do the same thing in, in, in European countries as well. I mean, they do share the same post-nationalist values. They do uh, reject democracy. They do see transnational uh, uh, institutions like the UN, that, like the EU, and even like the federal government, for that matter, if you look at it as a transnational uh, government that's trying to, that's trying to uh, uh, um, uh, repress the states and, and prevent them from governing uh, in, in according to federalist principles. Um, when, you, when you look at them, you say that, yeah, they do share common values. And the reason why Israelis, the majority of us, the Zionists, the Jews, you know, feel and share such a commonality of interests and values with American patriots is because we understand the value of national identity. We, we, we want, we think that there's something intrinsically valuable about having uh, an American, an American culture, an American identity, and an Israeli Jewish, you know, culture and identity, uh, and to preserve and to protect and to defend. And so, you know, there. That's why I say there are two Americas, but we're seeing more and more that there are two Israels as well. And it's and we've gotten to the point where you know the post-nationalists are in charge in Israel and in and in the United States, and we we're in a we're in a fight. Uh, which is why it's depressing. And I know that some of some of our viewers this week sent me emails saying, you know, you're so depressing. But look, we're in a fight. You know, yeah. I mean, we're in a fight. What can we do? I mean, that's the truth, you know, and 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 thank God, you know, we have justice on our side and we'll with truth, justice in the American way and the truth, justice in the Israeli way. We're going to prevail, God willing. But uh you know, just to go back to Ilhan Omar, you know, this also speaks to it because it's not just the Peter Beinarts, it's the Barry Weisses of the world as well, who are, you know, very loyal Jews who have very strong Jewish identities, who, who also have very strong progressive identities. And they've been trying to square this circle for a very long time, right? So Barry Weiss wrote this, uh, this book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, that I have huge problems with because she uh, accused without any basis of uh, Donald Trump of being an anti-Semite and a racist. And 
I, and she did it, you know, probably because she believes it, which is bad enough, but she also did it because that's how you build up your chits in the, in the liberal progressive world. You can't be listened to on this if you haven't agreed with them on that. So first you have to accept a lie in order to hopefully be able to promote a little bit of truth. And I think that that's a compromise that people shouldn't make. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why I found her book to be so, uh, uh, so horrible. But look, you know, what happened with Ilhan Omar, right? So she's like you said, you know, you can't keep track. She every every time she 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 uh, she changes her turban, she puts out another anti-Semitic uh, blood libel. So like last week, her latest thing was that she said that uh, the, the, she compared uh, she drew moral equivalence between Israel and the Hamas and the United States and the Taliban. And yeah, she was talking about the need for war crimes tribunals against the uh, Israeli and American uh, soldiers. Um, so, you know, whatever. So this provoked an outcry because it was not only anti-Semitic, it was anti-American. So you had 12 Democratic Jewish uh, lawmakers who signed a letter to Nancy Pelosi uh, condemning her remarks and, and asking for something to be done about it. And Nancy Pelosi proceeded to attack the Jews inside with Ilhan Omar. So, uh, you know, and this was after, like they wrote the letter and then all of the progressive people in the in the Red Green Alliance that controls the Democrat party got up and started attacking the Jews and defending the, uh, the Muslim woman of color that they're all attacking because they're racists. All the oh, Jews yeah, are racist yeah, against yeah. the Muslim woman of color. So uh, like you can't attack anti-Semites because they're not white, right? And so anyway, so that, that's their, that was their thing. And then Nancy Pelosi said- When will Jews wake up, Carolyn? Right, when, so then Ilhan Omar- When? Well, that's the thing. So this is the latest, the latest. So Jake Tapper, who is a Jew, right? He's a reformed Jew. He's a liberal progressive Jew. He has Ilhan Omar on his show on CNN, everybody's uh, network that you got to watch. And so he, he mentioned, you know, that he mentioned, he said, look, the Jews are really upset with you. Look, all of these Jews said that you're, you're wrong. And how did you do this? So then what did she said? I actually wrote it down before our talk. She said that the Jewish Democrats are not partners in justice. Okay. So she said, like, this is, these are people, liberal Jews, all they care about their lives, you know, are about social justice, which is like the rough translation of their way that they translate tikkun olam. You know, um, the American Jewish founding myth was not, you know, as opposed to every other Jewish community in the world, their founding myth was in 1963. It was not, you know, 3,400 years ago at Mount Sinai and the parting of the Red Sea. Their founding myth was the freedom rides. Was 64, the, the summer of love. Well, it was when it was when Schwarmer and Cheney and 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 the other fellow were were murdered in the in the freedom marches in the south, and they were participating in the uh, in the sit-ins and the lunch counters, and they were marching with Martin Luther King. That was the beginning of of Judaism, as far as liberal Jews are concerned, right? And and before that, the you know sort of the the genesis of the exodus of, of the American Jewish uh, uh, imagery was um, the labor movement and the Jewish leadership of, of the labor's movement of the international uh, women's garment, ladies garment uh, uh, union uh, that fought in the sweatshops in, in the Lower East Side of New York. And so, you know, th these were the founding myths. This is all about social justice. All they do is social justice. That's all they are. That's all they know. And here's here's Ilhan Omar says that the Jews are not partners in justice. And then she went on and said she knows what it feels like to experience injustice in ways that many of my colleagues don't. So they're privileged. I'm a I'm a and, and Jews have always had it so nice. Right. They've always been great. top dog, right? Right. You know, my grandmother didn't have to change her last name because she couldn't get a job because she, her last name was Komsky. You know, nothing. There's never been any problem. My grandfather didn't graduate Cooper Union and then had to open a sweatshop because he couldn't get a job as an engineer because no engineering firms would fire Jews. No, and of course, never... all Jews escaped the Holocaust. Right. No, no. You know, they forget the Holocaust. I'm just saying American Jews that weren't in the Holocaust. They never suffered anything, you know, and my or my dad couldn't go to Princeton because they had mandatory church every morning. You, you know, I, I mean, all kinds of things. Right. Everybody's suffered it in one way or another. Institutional, systemic anti-Semitism, you know, whatever. But no, Jews never had to deal with any of that kind of injustice. Only she did. You know, she came from the ruling class of Somalia and she came to the United States and immediately was pampered, but she's, she's suffered injustice and she's a, 
Muslim uh, women of color and how dare they. So this blew up the brains of a few uh, liberal Jews, right? And so they're starting to wake up saying, wait a minute, this woman isn't attacking Israel. She's not attacking Israeli Jews with guns and you know who walk around with Uzis or whatever. No, she's, she's attacking us. She is saying that the social justice Jews are not partners in justice. <laughs> well, then what are we, right? And so I think that actually, I have to say thank, thank you to Ilhan, you know, Sister Ilhan, thank you so much, you know, for making it clear to American Jews that this is not about Israeli Jews with Uzis, you know, and big kippahs on their head. No, no, no. This is about them. You hate them. You hate social justice Jews. You hate tikkun olam Jews. You say they're not partners in justice. Now, of course, I already saw some. Uh, then she, of course, put out a clarification. She's always learning. She's always learning. She's growing, blah, 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 blah. So then you see these obsequious thank yous to Ilhan Omar. I think I retweeted one. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, they will not learn. They will not learn. Some they will. should have learned. They should have learned when Stockley Carmichael took over SNCC in 1966 and kicked out all the Jews from the, stu from the, the, the student branch of the civil rights movement. And they haven't learned since. They haven't learned since. What they, what they keep learning is that they should try harder. Now, so now they're going to seek her seal of approval. Just you wait. You were making everybody optimistic with all of this Pollyanna-ish, we're going to prevail, we shall overcome crap. And now you're telling me after I'm giving, you know, Look, my we, Pollyanna we, stuff. We, we, uh, you, you are way out of line with this optimism, Caroline. Ah! We cannot agree to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just tell our viewers, because okay, we're going we're gonna to cut off soon because I just can't stand it anymore. But let me just tell you something, all right? You know, I always say, we just have to do the best we can. And, you know, we have to keep telling the truth and we have to keep fighting for the truth and we have to keep fighting for our countries and we have to keep fighting for our people. And we will win, you know, because truth is like the easiest thing to market. You know, if you just look at it from a business perspective, you know, it's, it's, look at the trouble that they have to go through to repackage all of their lies every five minutes and call it something else. We just have that one package. We just have that one product. It's called truth, you know, and we just have to get it out. We just have to get it out. You have to get it out. You have to talk to your friends. You have to talk to your colleagues. You have to be willing to stand up for it. We're going to be pushing you forward, you know, and talking about it and arguing about it. And, you know, it, there is reason for pessimism, huge reason for worry. But mm -hmm. we also just have to realize that we're not nothing. You know, and uh, and God willing, we're not going anywhere. We're in for an inch, we're in for a mile, and we're going to keep plowing ahead and trying our best. So that's that, right? And so subscribe to our YouTube channel, subscribe to our Rumble channel, buy subscriptions, buy them, you know, whatever. Maybe we'll start selling them soon. But meantime, just sign up. So for long as you get them free. Grab yeah, them. sign them for now for free, right? Give them to all no, that, your the, the strategy should be if you get it free now, you keep it free. You know? <laughs> We're not going to cheat you. We're not going to cheat you. Get oh, we it might. now free. Well, we'll decide. <laughs> well, what we'll do is like, did you guys read Catch-22? There was this part where they were censoring all the letters home. Yossarian was all of the letters and they were supposed to censor him and he was bored. So sometimes he would censor him by taking out all the verbs from each sentence. <laughs> sometimes he would just like take out every other word in a sentence just for funny would take out all of the direct articles you know what and and oh i think one time you took out the prepositions so so the basic idea here is we may keep it free or we may think of some random way to charge every third person or whatever <laughs> so you have a two-thirds chance of keeping it free but in the meantime it's free subscribe subscribe get subscription like do something really funny like if you have email lists just subscribe every single member of your email list and then they can unsubscribe. <laughs> no, we're doing pretty well on subscriptions. We are doing well. We're doing well. We want to build up our base and we want to do it without paying a cent. So you guys <laughs> have to, you know, get the word out and, and, and we'll see you next week. Okay. Great. Great talking to you. All right. Good seeing bye you bye. again. Bye. bye.